Happy Father's Day. Let me read the last two verses of the Old Testament. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, This is Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the great day of Messiah that Malachi foretold has come. We thank you that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he ushered in the messianic age by proclaiming, repent, and believe the good news. So, um, Jesus, we, we thank you that part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as redeemed men is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So God, do that in our lives. Give us a deep love for the welfare of our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come. I pray that you'd so work in us that we would pray and communicate the glory of Jesus to those who come behind us. We thank you that the vast majority of men who name the name of Jesus understand this. And Lord, I, I, there are very few here that will have roads named after them or skyscrapers or whatever, but, but every person here, single, married, will leave a legacy of faith. And to that end, let us live with diligence and let us live to the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've gone to vacation Bible school, you've heard the children oftentimes sing a little song, a little hymn that goes like this. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and rounds me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. Next answer, this is my father's world. The birds that carol sing, the morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. I love that phrase. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Well, so far, this could be written by a a Baha'i or a Hindu. But then he gets the gospel. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And the question is, how is Jesus satisfied when all of the redeemed that he's died for on the cross are brought in the storehouse of faith? When the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth and every man, woman, and child has the ability to hear, then Jesus will be satisfied when all the nations hear. And so this little hymn reflects the, the precarious balance between saying, behold the goodness and the glory of creation and the God behind creation, and behold the fact that we are in battle. The book of Ephesians, for example, in Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in the next 11 verses, Paul says 11 different times we're in Christ. We're in Christ. We're in Christ. And then he says in chapter 
Uh, 2 verse 4, when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, God made you alive in Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. He ends chapter 3 by saying, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Amen. Behold the wonder and the glory of Christ. But he also says in chapter 6, the passage we've been studying, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand. And after you've done all, you'll stand. And so really, the, the, the picture here is um, of, I've got a, I've got a, can you hand me that clicker? My wife was in the gym last week at this hour, and she said, you disappeared for five seconds, and we didn't know, we thought you died or something, and uh, I had to get my clicker, I forget that. So that's, thank you. We, we, um, we're like a man walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. We realize, when you really understand, we are at warfare. This is a battleground. There's a battleground in your heart, in your family, in your relationships, in this church. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the angels, against the principalities, against the powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And so we are careful. We're prayerful because we realize that we fight against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This little diagram here. The world of flesh and the devil, and where one begins and the other ends, we don't always know. But we are at battle. And so we want to be very, very careful. And so Paul comes to this closing exhortation in this discussion of the Christian in complete armor. And he says this, verse 18 to 20, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to to that we may be alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, you know, pray. Pray because we are in battle Pray because prayer makes all the other pieces of the Christian armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet of the shod with the gospel of peace, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. It makes these things glow. Therefore, pray. Bring your petitions, your supplications to God. And pray, he says, in the Spirit. I'm going to give you some principles of prayer from this little passage. He says, pray in or by the Spirit. And as you study the book of Ephesians, we've gone back and forth through Ephesians, to pray in the Spirit, I'm going to say yes means three things, to be in the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit. First of all, if I'm to pray in the Spirit, I've got to get the gospel continuously right. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's talking to a group of Gentiles, and he says, Now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made both groups one by 
abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, making peace. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In one spirit to the Father through Christ. So, so I say to myself, self, if, if I'm going to pray and live and worship in the spirit, I've got to understand the gospel. I've got to understand verse 18 with crystal clarity. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. A glorious Trinitarian verse. Through Christ, we have access to the Father in or by the Spirit as we understand the gospel. I've got to get the gospel right. I've got to be grounded in the gospel. I was thinking about this this week, and I read Hebrews 10. and In Hebrews 10, verse 14, it says this, just a glory, glorious verse. For, for, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering, one work, one crucifixion, one cross for all time. So if, if I'm to be a prayer in the Spirit, a worshiper in the Spirit, to be even filled with the Spirit, I've got to continuously get the gospel right. I've been reading some stuff, book on New England Transcendentalist. We read about them in high school, the 1830s, the 1850s. Walt Whitman, Emerson, Thoreau, that group. And a, a transcendentalist would say something like this. I, I believe there is a God, and God is the great creator God, but he's beyond definition. He's beyond definition. I can't define God. He's beyond words. And we say, no, God has defined himself in Scripture. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in God's worldwide redemptive work in the church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. I believe these things. So don't ever say, well, he's just a humble guy. That, that, that is a, a, a statement that is nonsensical when you come to Scripture. We believe in the gospel. I was reading Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. It's a long poem. And this is what he says. He says, this is a perfect statement about the transcendentalist. I, I hear and behold God in every object, yet understand God not in the least, nor do I understand who there can be more wonderful than me. Yeah. yeah. I don't be married to that guy, you know. Get up in the morning, who can there be more wonderful than me? Aren't you blessed to be married to somebody as wonderful as me? But you know, the, the first part, he says, you know, I... I see God, but I can't, I can't define God, understand God. God has defined himself in Scripture. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The ultimate revelation of God is the person of Christ. Or I was reading also Emerson. Emerson wrote a, a very lengthy little track against the Lord's Supper. He says, I don't like the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper puts a go-between between me and the God who is. I'm going to go straight to the God who is. I don't want to have a go-between. And when I read that, I thought, Emerson understood the gospel. He didn't believe it, but he understood the gospel. The reason we need a mediator is because we are sinful. And a sinful man cannot come into the presence of the triune God in his holiness. And so in the fullness of time, God fulfilled the sacrificial system instituted in the Old Testament by the one act of Jesus on the cross. 
And we rejoice and say, He is our mediator by one act. This is what Emerson said. Jesus is a mediator in the only sense in which possibly any being can mediate between God and man. That is only as an instructor. There's no blood sacrifice. There's no work on the cross. And I, I, I just, so I, I walk away from these guys and I go, you know, to be in the Holy Spirit and to pray in the Holy Spirit is to be anchored in the gospel. That prayer mirrors the gospel. When I come to Christ by faith, I say, I am not worthy. I need a mediator. When I come to God in prayer, I say, Lord, I only come on the work of Jesus. I boldly come to the throne of grace, like Hebrews 4 says, because Christ is my God and King. So if I'm to pray in the Spirit, I've got to get the gospel. Secondly, if I'm to pray or be in the Holy Spirit, I've got to understand community. The next few verses talk about community in Ephesians 2. Listen, Ephesians 2, 18 for the, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then he says this. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, by the Spirit. So, so in whom the whole building is joined together and grows into a holy temple in Christ, into a dwelling, a place for God by the Spirit. So if, if I am to pray in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be in the Spirit, I've got to understand the vital importance of community. And I've got to work to build community. And that's hard. Many of you grew up in a church tradition. And many of you went to summer camp. Summer camp is a time when you go away and you meet all kinds of people from all the other churches from all that part of the country. And you spend a week together singing and uh, hearing sermons, and by the end of the week, everybody there is committed to be a missionary in West Africa or something like that. It, it just happens, you know. And, and so you hold hands and you make s'mores, which are a really terrible thing to eat, but you make them and you eat them, and, and you, as you leave, you embrace, and you forever commit yourself to be friends. And that was long before Facebook when I grew up, and you never saw them again. But you go home on this high, and the only problem, you go home and you start living with a group of sinners, my mom and dad and brother. They always, they always destroyed everything I learned at youth camp within, within two days. They, they didn't appreciate the fact they had the Apostle Paul living among them, you know. <laughs> and so you talk about, you go from the, the, the high of a mission trip to the high of youth camp back into the valley of living with your family. Let me tell you this. For those of you that may just went on youth camp or whatever, if you live six months with those people you held hands with and made marshmallows with and sang songs with within six months, they'd be driving you crazy because we are messes. Everybody here is a mess. Everybody here needs grace. See, community is just hard. It's joyful, but it's hard. 
Community with brothers and sisters is hard. Community in marriage is hard. Community in parenting is hard. That's why Jesus says with such great clarity, he says, you know, if, 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 if you see a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you want to help him get it out, first get the two by four out of your eye. Then help your brother. He's not saying don't get the speck. He says, you know, get the two by four out. Galatians 6 says, if anybody sees a brother who's trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, go and restore him and do it with a spirit of incredible gentleness. These you two be tempted. And so this marriage, community, is just hard. But let me say, some, some of you are getting ready to get married, getting ready to have a baby, getting ready to, you know, whatever you're doing. Anything you do that's worth anything is hard. Anything, anything in life, you don't just float into it. It's hard. I've been watching a TV show and did some research on the actors, and I saw, you know, just for fun, that the two stars met each other on the set, and it says, and they got married. And I thought, that's cool. Next paragraph, they divorced after one year. And I said, one year? You don't even put the pictures up the first year. Your suitcase didn't really unpack in one year. Come on. And maybe something happened that was horrific, but I mean, come on. It just takes work. I have a new favorite golfer, Bubba Watson. I know nothing about golf, but I like Bubba Watson. When he won the Masters, that little baby came across the green. He picked it up. I thought, man, that's cool. Bubba Watson, I'm sure when he was developing, he's left-handed, right? Okay. When he was developing his golf game and he was having a difficult time learning how to chip which is a tough part of golf, I'm told. I don't know golf. I'm sure this thought went through his mind. You know, I may just stay with putt-putt. Putt-putt's easier. You just, you know that windmill? You just, it goes right through. You don't hit the blade. You just go, it's putt-putt's easy. It's not as expensive. It doesn't take as much time. Yo-Yo Ma. I love Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist playing Bach. I'm just going, Yo-Yo Ma, man. I'm sure you, when Yo-Yo Ma was young and he was learning Bach, he thought, you know, maybe I should just stick with old MacDonald had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. Really? It, it just takes effort. Community is hard, but it's joyful. You're a family. You have three kids. You're the dad. You've thought and you decided, we want to do a whirlwind trip. We're going to go see the Grand Canyon in Arizona. It's 2,323.4 miles from Charleston. And so you tell the family, they get excited, you do the research, you stop the mill, you take care of the yard, you do the house, you do that, and by the time you're ready to go, you're totally exhausted. And the, the great day comes, and you've put the dog and the three children in the car. Your wife jump, jumps in. You've got everything strapped to the side, and you look like you're going to you know, invade a major country. You've got so much stuff. And, and so as you go on that trip, you realize very quickly you've got to exercise forgiveness. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to ask for forgiveness. When a child says something you don't like, you have to sing a hymn or quote a verse to not snap at them. You have to be forbearing. You have to be kind to your wife when you don't want to be. And all of that takes place before you get to Columbia. <laughs> and if you've ever been on a trip, you know I'm telling the truth because it's just hard. 
but it's glorious. So two, two points. The first is a point from Calvin. Give me that book. I don't want to leave them. I'm still here. I just want to read this. This is from Calvin. Calvin is, 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 this, this is glorious. Calvin is talking about how to fulfill the dictates of do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And it's just so, he says this. A Christian does not allow a brother's name to be sullied by falsehood. Also wishes it to be kept unblemished as far as truth permits. Indeed, although he may guard against it, against lying only, he yet implies by this commandment that it is entrusted to his care. He says, your brother's and sister's good name is entrusted to your care. And he says, not only the, what you hear, it's what you think, and it's what you speak. He says, now, if we turn our eyes to the lawgiver, we must in our own right rule our ears and our heart no less than our tongue. We shall surely see that eagerness to hear detractions and unbecoming readiness to make unfavorable judgments are forbidden by the living God. And I just thought, oh, how many times have I really secretly delighted in hearing bad news about people that I don't really like? Therefore, if there is any true fear and love of God in us, let us take care as far as it is possible and expedient, and as love requires, not to yield our tongue and our ears to evil speaking and caustic wit, and not to give our minds without cause to sly suspicion. Not to give our minds to sly suspicion. The, the, the term that came to mind as I read that is, is giving people the benefit of the doubt. That, that, that you put the best spin until you know something. He says here that that doesn't mean you don't confront them with sin, even publicly if they don't listen. But, but you, you don't run to the worst scenario you can think of. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. I, I am so tired of people criticizing our elected leaders. First Timothy 2 does not say I should criticize, demean, and belittle elected leaders. It says I should pray for them. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. See, that's how you preserve community in the body of Christ. You believe the best. Listen, today's dad, Father's Day. Dads, believe the best about your kids. Don't ever leave your kid without saying to them, your child without saying, I'm proud of you or I love you. And if your child is involved in some horrendous activity and they're involved in some subgroup of our culture that, that breaks your heart, you look at your child and say, I'm going to love you stronger and deeper and better than that group of people will ever love you. I love you. God is at work in you. You, you don't see it right now, but God is at work in you, and I believe it. So you, you give people the benefit of the doubt. And secondly, you keep the mission central. You can think about things that distract you you don't like, but if you, if you keep the mission central... You'll be okay. In your marriage, if you start looking at your spouse and saying, what are you going to do for me? That's the death knell of a marriage. But if you say, what can we do together to advance the kingdom of God? Or if we have children, to, what can we do to nurture and raise children who will love and fear God in His triune beauty? Your marriage will sing. 
Um, I, this is the 100th anniversary of a war that defies description, World War I. If you've ever studied World War I, I, I just how it began, why it began, the purpose for continuing it makes no sense to me. But 10 million men were killed in World War I. Small countries like Romania especially were bled to death. France bled to death. And what happened? A few months into the war, there were some trenches dug across France and Belgium and the Germans were over here and the Allies were over here and there was very little change in that trench warfare until November of 1918 when the war came to close. Almost four years. Ten million men. Slaughter. Disease. On the first Christmas, it's a wild story, true story. First Christmas, 1914, in the wee hours of Christmas morning, right after midnight, the Germans were singing Silent Night, Holy Night. The Brits heard it, and they started singing Silent Night, O Come All Ye Faithful, back and forth, until later at sunrise, under a flag of truce, a German soldier came out, and he walked across no man's land, and he gave a rum cake to the Brits. The Brits responded. Several men held up white flags, went across no man's land. They met in the middle and they started exchanging gifts and talking and as best they could. A soccer match broke out at one place. The Germans won three to two. The Germans were laughing at the Scots and their kilts. And then as the sun was going down, the men shook hands and went back to their lines and a German officer sent a message across no man's land and said, please be advised that at midnight our commanding officers told us to start shooting again. Please take cover. It's amazing. Now, not all, not all people like that. There was a corporal on the German side from Austria, and he was reported to have said, quote, such things should not ever happen in wartime. He said, have you Germans have no sense of honor left at all within you, close quote, and the corporal's name was Adolf Hitler. I thought, here, here are these men. I thought, that, that's, that's us. You know, we keep the mission in your marriage, in your family. You keep the mission of Christ central. But that's what we're called to do. That's, that's who we're called to be. And thirdly, if, if we're to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit, we must be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18 says this, Be not drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation. Previous to that, Paul says, be very careful how you walk. Walk as wise men. He says, be not drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you look at this passage and you go, you're filled with the Spirit. The manifestations are is that, is that you, you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you make melody in your heart to the Lord. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're a worshiper. You worship God. You glory in the goodness of Christ by the Spirit. You, you worship. And then he says, secondly, you, you give thanks always for everything to God 
the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're thankful. You're, you're glad. You're, you're thankful for God's gift of daily provision. You're thankful for the mercy of the cross. You're, you're just a thankful person. Are you a thankful person? And then thirdly, it says you submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. You, you learn from one another. You, you carry out your role relationships. You, you respond to one another. You're teachable. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And if I'm to pray in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and worship in the Spirit, I've got to be filled with the Spirit. This, see, this is a continuous tense, present tense command. We're leaky buckets. We're leaky buckets. Listen, we're, we're like a pool of water in the desert. We quickly evaporate. I need the daily grace of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need to plead, God, give me the Holy Spirit in power. Let me be the man that you have called me to be in your grace and your mercy. We're leaky buckets. In the book of Colossians, Paul says this. He says, Colossians 3, 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then he says this, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, what do you do? You, you let the word of Christ dwell in you. you. You study the Bible. You pray the Bible. You sing the Bible. You memorize. You, you think and you say, God, take the word of God by the Holy Spirit and reveal my issues and change me. So we're told in this passage to, to pray in the Spirit. Secondly, the next two are very quick. Secondly, we're to, we to keep alert with all perseverance. He said, as you pray, he says, he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You keep, you keep alert. Have you ever been driving down the road late at night, and you're getting a little sleepy, and you run off the road and you hit a couple of bumps and man, you're, you are wide awake. It's like you just got a major shot of, you know, two liters of, 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 of Red Bull. Boom, you're awake. See, that's the, way life should, that's the way life should happen to us. As we look at life and the contours of life and, and the pitfalls of us, we, man, we should be, just listen, be alert. Be alert. Don't fall asleep at the helm. Be alert. And see, prayer is a declaration of, I want to be alert. I want to be with it. I don't want to keep on going and living in such a way that I think I'm going to live forever and ever and ever and ever because you're not. Life is short and then you die. Be alert. You leave a legacy for the generations. Be alert. Be alert. And this is thirdly, and this, this really moves me. Paul's in prison. He's three to four years before he dies. He's already written 11 or 12 of the epistles that we have in the New Testament. He's been on missionary journeys. He's seen churches established. He's seen things flourish. He's been persecuted, left for dead, snake bit. He's, been, he's, he's run the gamut. He's in prison. He's chained to some guards. He's lived it. He's lived it for 25 years. 
as the man. And this is what he says. Pray for me. Pray for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. He said, are you kidding me? Paul, come on. I mean, you, you, you've been everywhere, preached the gospel everywhere, done everything. Really? Yeah. Because Paul understood he needed daily grace. He understood that daily grace came from, in part, the prayers of God's people. How does that work? I don't know, but it does. That's why he writes in one of his earlier epistles, 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I won't be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, you know, I'm going hard because I don't want to lose out on the blessing of hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant. I am very careful. And so he's sitting here chained between two guards. You know, how much trouble can you get in in prison chained between two guards? And he says, but here's his prayer, pray that I would be a bold witness for Christ. And that just blesses me. He was going for it. Are you praying for each other? Do you see the absolute importance of praying for one another? I was reading Matthew 14 recently, thinking about it. Well-known passage. It's a passage where Jesus comes to his men at night walking on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's pretty bold. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus Next verse, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And I just thought, you know, this, this is us, isn't it? We do well. But then we see the wind and the waves, and they eclipse Jesus. And so we need to cry out all the time, Lord, save me. Lord, work in my life. Lord, you, know, you, you face the wind of discouragement, the wind of defeatism, the wind sometimes of prosperity, the wind of criticism from other people, the wind of sickness. Oh, the wind of seeing a loved one die, and you lose sight of Jesus. You need to cry, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. Then the very next little statement says that he went into the area of the Gennesaret. And the men of that place recognized Jesus and they, they sent all around to all the region and brought to him all that were sick and implored him that he might only touch, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as has touched it were made well. Just touch the fringe. I don't know what you're struggling with, but 
Our greatest need is to touch the fringe of the garment. That's it. Our greatest need, fathers, Father's Day, parents, relationships, our greatest need is just to touch the fringe of the garment. That's what we need. To be people who seek God and cry out, God, save me continually, empower me by your spirit, oh God, use me. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the, the privilege of prayer. And we, we come only because of who Christ is, not who we are. And Lord, uh, wherever we are in our situation in life, uh, show us the joy and the privilege of just crying out to you and saying, Abba, Father, by the power of the Spirit because of the reality of the cross. So teach us what it means to walk in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit, to be in the Spirit, to worship you in the Spirit. Teach us the centrality of the gospel, the vital importance of community. I pray. Just pray. Pray, pray. Teach us, Lord, um, what it means to pray for each other. Teach us what it means to pray with alert and a persevering mind. Oh, teach us, Lord, what it means to, even as those who are older and have been faithful and gracious and kind and diligent, how much more should they or we pray? Oh, church, pray for me. Pray for me that I might live it out. So we love you, Lord. Let us touch the fringe of your garment as we study the word and as we pray and seek you. We just thank you. On your name in our lives this week, in Jesus' name, amen.